Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Can you Naomi? Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. Welcome back, listeners, to the Irish Passport Podcast, where today we'll be taking a closer look at systemic racism in Ireland, how it interacts with our own ideas of history, how it's long been downplayed and even denied, and what we can do to address it as a modern society. This episode is coming at a time of cultural revolution. The killing of George Floyd in the United States sparked a series of ongoing international demonstrations, galvanising a sense of change to challenge the deeply ingrained racial prejudices that still permeate many institutions and walks of life. The international reverberations of the demonstrations in America has been one of the most remarkable effects of that movement. Countries all over the world have found themselves in a moment of reckoning with their own systemic discriminations, and on a scale that has not been seen in decades, if ever before. So we want to zoom in on Ireland in that context. This is a topic we wanted to look at since the very beginning of the podcast. Until recently enough, Ireland has tended to turn a blind eye to systemic racism at home. But it's become increasingly evident over the years that this tendency in itself has helped to allow and even institutionalise prejudice on a huge scale. The statistics here are really shocking. Uh, In 2018, the European Union launched a report called Being Black in the EU, which surveyed discrimination across member states. That report, which took in over 25,000 participants, found that Ireland had among the highest rates of racist abuse reported in the whole bloc. Uh, Over five years... 13% of respondents in Ireland claim to have experienced racist violence. That's the second highest in the EU after Finland. At the same time, it found that black people in Ireland are among the lowest paid in the whole EU, about on par with Malta. Meanwhile, Amnesty International has reported that there's a particularly intense problem with racism in Northern Ireland, where racist incidents have now reportedly overtaken those associated with intercommunity conflict. In this episode, we'll be looking at the historical significance of racial discrimination in Ireland, and at some of the interesting crossovers in imperial, racialist and nationalist historical narratives, and how that plays out when it comes to things like the removal of statues from public spaces. We'll be speaking to Bonnie O'Demina who recently founded the Black and Irish Instagram page, which has become a near overnight success as it launched to tell the hidden history of Ireland's black community. And we'll be speaking to Dr. Iban Joseph, the co-founder and coordinator of Ireland's first Black Studies module, who will tell us about her research into structural racism in Ireland and what measures can be taken to redress it. But first, let's hand the mic over to our guest reporter for this episode, Amanda Ade, a documentary maker from Kildare and host of the Boxed Out podcast, who's been taking part in Ireland's Black Lives Matter protests. In recent weeks, the outrage sparked by the death of George Floyd has swept across the whole world. As multiple protests were held globally, in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement against police brutality, we've witnessed a shift in the conversation and racism being highlighted as the root cause of these issues. Members of the Black Irish community have taken to social media to speak out against the racism that exists right here in Ireland. And while I'll start off by saying that Ireland is not fundamentally a racist country or a country built on racist principles, this, however, does not take away from the fact that racism is very much alive in Ireland. And as a South African-born, Kildare-raised 22-year-old, in my 20-plus years of living in Kildare, I personally have experienced a lot of racial discrimination towards me, whether that's verbal or non-verbal, whether it's covert, overt, or in the form of microaggressions. There's so many ways that it's manifested, even here in Ireland. And just speaking for myself, I can say that my experience of growing up in Ireland has been mostly positive. However, I know this is not the case for a lot of people. So in this, I'll be speaking to a few members of the Black Irish community and hopefully provide you with a bigger picture of what life has been like growing up Black in Ireland.
told me that when I was about five or six that she watched me try and scrub the brown from my skin and cry because it wouldn't come off. You know, years later then, I now have to endure hearing my five-year-old son telling me that he wished that he had skin like his dad and that he wants to be white like everybody else. You know, that just kills me. And as much as I try to lift him up and, um, you know, try and help him to feel black and proud, his peers, the media and day-to-day life, they have more influence than anything. There's no reason why a child should feel badly about their skin colour. And that's something that comes from the top down, you know, through parents and families, friends. You know, racism is a taught thing. It then becomes a learned point of view and then a way of life. And it only stops with change, change of mentality and growth. Me and my family moved to Ireland around 20 years ago. Uh, in that time, I've had a lot of experiences with racism, whether it be overt, covert, microaggressions, um, abuse. I suppose I don't want to really like touch on any specific experience per se. Just one thing that for me that bothers me and one thing that I want people to be aware of is that nervousness around sometimes anyway, around being black, especially when you are the only person who's black in a scenario or you're starting or you're um, new to a situation, you're starting a new job, new school, new in college, and you sort of always feel, the, the closest thing I can describe it to is nervousness, that you're like just very anxious and very aware that you are a black and that people might not like you because of the amount of melanin in your skin or people might act a certain way towards you because of how you look and because of where you're from, because of how you sound. And you really, a lot of times, can't do nothing about it because if you speak up, you'll be looked at a certain way. If you if you get like angry about it, you'll be seen as aggressive. And I think it's important that people understand this that there is little things that like black people have to deal with every day that a white person just doesn't have to now a word that was mentioned there is a word that i've been hearing more and more of especially around the topic of racism in ireland the term microaggressions has been coined as a term describing a form of racism which many people may not even be aware of I think a large part of the conversation of tackling racism in Ireland is understanding that racism is expressed in different ways and there are different types of racism. I think a lot of people, when they think of racism, imagine blatant acts of racism, whether that is calling somebody derogatory names and being physically violent towards somebody, you know, in your face type of racism. What a lot of people don't realize is that in Ireland in particular, microaggressions are actually the most common way in which people experience racial prejudice in Ireland. So Danielle, from your personal experience, what are some of the microaggressions that you faced growing up and how have they affected you? Examples, I'm going to give you some. Where are you from? Oh, I'm from Ireland. No, I mean, where are you actually from? Like, where are you really, really from? They presume I'm from some country in Africa. Oh, um, you speak English, like, really well for someone who's not from here. Okay. <laughs> oh, um, do you speak African? Well, first of all, Africa is a continent. Uh, how many occupied by how many different countries? So, no, I don't speak African. Oh, um, I didn't expect your accent to be so strong. Like, you've got a really strong Irish accent. Okay. Is that your real hair? A lot of black girls will get this question quite a bit. And then you have people that then proceed to come and touch your hair. These are examples of racial microaggressions that people don't deem as racist because they haven't said the N-word or condemn me by the colour of my skin. But these are things that people say every day and they don't realise the impact that it may have on someone who's black. I really, really, really want people to educate themselves and educate people around you. You know what I think a lot of it is, especially here in Ireland, it's just blissful ignorance. I think people genuinely don't realise that they are being offensive sometimes and they don't intend to be offensive a lot of the time. You know, it's very much part of Irish culture to just slag people and everything is just brushed under the rug of just being banter. 
But what I think people just need to see is that even within a joke, even within the banter, that there need to be boundaries. And sometimes, you know, the line is kind of crossed over and it gets into the territory of now being offensive towards somebody. And, you know, I think it's great that this conversation is finally being had because otherwise people just wouldn't know. They wouldn't know um, what people of colour face here in Ireland on on a daily basis and I think it's these type of conversations are so important so everyone can just really see um things from you know other people's perspectives and it's funny that it took something happening halfway across the world for these conversations to start being had here in Ireland but I think that in itself just highlights the fact that this is not just an American problem and although it may not be to the same extent it's a problem faced here in Ireland by people of colour on a, on a daily basis. So Tamalori and um, what I've seen a lot of online is people almost invalidating the experiences of people of colour here in Ireland just because things may not seem as extreme as you know, the images that we've seen coming from the US and the UK, for example. So just from your perspective, what are your feelings and thoughts on this? Uh, I want to speak on it from my standpoint as a black man in Ireland. Um, obviously, the extent and the extremity of police brutality in America isn't the same as it is here. But I still feel enraged, hurt and upset over the situation. And it's definitely something I'm 100% entitled to speak about. And, you know, initially when everything really started kicking off online, I got the sense that there was a bit of a disconnect. But I think as time went on and as more people started speaking out, people started realizing that, you know, the underlying theme throughout all of this is racism, ultimately. And it may look very different. It might be dressed very differently but it's an issue that's not too far from home. So I suppose the question now is, where do we go from here? Like, what do we do? And I think this is just the start of this conversation. This is just the beginning. And every day I'm seeing more and more people, you know, just want to learn and want to try and understand and see things um, from other people's perspectives. But to those that are still unsure about everything, to those that are still not quite understanding why so many people are speaking out and why there's so much anger and frustration behind everything. John Luke, what would you say to those people? Whether you identify with it or not, because obviously if you're a non-black person, it's probably, you might not feel as obliged to, if you don't identify with black culture or anything like that. But as humans, there's humanity in finding or in looking for justice. Do you know what I mean? Don't be don't be silent. Don't be silent. If it's happening, it can happen to you in reverse. If it's happened to someone else, it can happen to you. So don't be silent in the face of injustice. Yeah, that's it. That's so powerful and that's so true. And even if that's the one thing that people take away from everything that's happened the past couple of weeks, um, I think that'll be a huge step forward is just don't allow injustice, wherever it is you may be, um, use your voice, use your platform, be that change in your spheres of influence, in your friend groups. Racism is not something that can be tackled on a global scale or even on a national scale. Um, you know, the real change happens at your dinner table. You know, the real change happens in your friend groups, in, in your families. You know, it's having those awkward conversations. It's calling things out when you see them, calling out prejudice and discrimination when you see it in whatever form that may be. It's educating yourself, but all the resources out there, it's asking questions. That's when the real change happens and that's when we'll, we'll really see um, that change begin to manifest in Ireland. Thanks so much to Amanda and the participants in that report. I think one of the most important things to take away from that piece is something we've touched on before in a different context, which is that ignorance can be highly indulgent. And really, when it causes harm, it's never justifiable. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's so important what Amanda highlights there about the, you know, relentless burden of microaggressions. Like everyone can relate to how it feels when someone is unnecessarily rude to you, or maybe when someone stares at you or is dismissive when you speak, or, you know, just ever so slightly disrespectful in a way that maybe other people don't notice. 
And, you know, everyone knows that even as a once-off, that kind of thing has the power to ruin your day. So just think of the sheer force of those little moments of hostility happening not just every day, but perhaps multiple times a day when you're just trying to get on and live your life. You know, that's a hugely oppressive thing. Part of the subtext is an assumption that black people in Ireland are immigrants or somehow belong less than the white population. Part of the reason for assumptions like this is that the story of black Irish people is a neglected part of history, just as it is throughout Europe. Ireland has, of course, always had a diverse and changing population, and people of African descent have been in Ireland for centuries at least. The Dublin newspaper, The Freeman's Journal, wrote in 1777 that black people in Dublin were, I quote, common to meet with. There have been prominent and successful black Irish people, from Rachel Baptist, who was born in Ireland in 1750 and became a famous singer who toured internationally, to Osmond Tismani, who was born in South Africa in 1877 and ended up moving to Tim's home turf of Barna in Galway, where he became a student and fluent Irish speaker. And that's not to mention all the more contemporary black Irish figures we can think of, from the Thin Lizzy frontman Phil Linnett, to Ireland's first black mayor, Rotimi Adabari, to the actress Ruth Nega, or the famous footballer Paul McGrath. Nevertheless, there's a common assumption in Ireland that black people are immigrants, and the context to that is that the black population of Ireland did increase significantly starting from the 1990s, as Ireland began to have its economic boom and attracted people from all over the world. Black people still are a very small minority in Ireland, however. As of the 2016 census, just 1.42% of the population self-identify as black. So, spurred by the Black Lives Matter movement, a phenomenon is taking place right now to weave the stories of black people back into Irish history. And one of the focus points of this is the Instagram page Black and Irish. It first started posting the stories, struggles and successes of the black Irish community only at the start of June in a series that it calls the Black Irish Story. The page has since racked up tens of thousands of followers. And I spoke to one of its founders, the former DIT Student Union President, Bonnie Odemene, to ask him what it was all about. What really inspired it was really what was happening up in America with the whole protest and the Black Lives Matter movement. What that kind of spawned here within my social circle was a conversation about race and race relations in Ireland. And it was from that um, a couple of ideas would juggle around between myself and my friends and my siblings. And before we knew it, we had an online chat going on on Instagram Live, which then made was turned into an Instagram page, which as of today has now hit 10,000 followers in less than five days. So it's, uh, it's been amazing and a bit of a roller coaster, definitely. Stories ranging from black Irish people who moved to Ireland in the 1980s and how they grew up to stories of how another black and Irish woman was put in an orphanage because she was deemed um, unwanted from her Irish side, white Irish side of her family as she was a mixed race to even more like up to date um, stories like you know, 19-year-olds who have lived in Ireland their whole life and the usual racial slurs and inactivity at school from the authorities in regards to race and racism. The reason why I'm doing this video is because the other day I was talking to a fella and I asked him, do you think Ireland is racist? He said, no. That Why would it be racist? There's no racism that happens in the country. Like I've had stones thrown at me. I've been physically hit. I've been called the N-word so many times at this point. I, I've lost count. Um, my nanny's Irish. She's from Marino. She married a black man in the early 60s and had um, three mixed-race kids with my granddad. Her family disowned her. I have a six-week-old daughter and actually currently her complexion is white. And it's been an ongoing joke with people, you know, she doesn't look like you and, you know, all this. But jokes aside, I actually have come to the realisation that I'm glad that she appears white because in reality, in my mind, because she looks like this, maybe just maybe her life might be a little bit easier. Might be a bit easier than mine and so many other people of colour. As Bonnie himself pointed out, there are striking parallels between this outpouring about experiences of racism that's taking place and the great social change that preceded Ireland's landmark referendums to end the ban on abortion and legalise equal marriage. In both of those referendums, ordinary people sharing their experiences of how a problem had impacted them was incredibly powerful and force society to confront an issue that had previously been hidden or ignored. 
there's, there's many stories out there and it's very important, like with repeal and like with the marriage, the gay marriage referendum, that people hear these stories and see us. I was so shocked, uh, Naomi, finding out that if you were born mixed race in Ireland, in, in old Catholic Ireland, whether it be the 60s, 70s, etc., that you had a higher chance of being put into a Magdalene laundry and or, or, or adopted abroad because the community didn't want you. And the scars that I left on our black Irish community back then are still there till this day with many mixed race adults trying to find out who their mother and father was. You know, this is not told in our schools. This is not told in our history books. And now we have a new way. We have a new generation of black Irish people trying to find themselves and make this country better. Something that you hear again and again when talking about this topic is this great resistance to accepting that racism is a problem in Irish society. Some people can even get hurt or offended by the suggestion. Yeah, right. And that's an attitude, I suppose, that we see uh, all over the world. Uh, People who have not experienced racism themselves can often be sceptical about the full extent of what's going on around them. And that can create a dangerously comfortable echo chamber. You know, either you can stay in that bubble and presume that your personal experience is the sum of reality, or you can devote serious time and effort into finding out what the people around you are experiencing on a daily basis. And obviously, the first option is far easier. And that can make racial discrimination effectively invisible for huge swathes of people who just don't engage themselves with it or who don't want to have to deal with it. Just speaking for myself, Tim, I don't know why people need so much convincing to accept that there is racism in Ireland. Like, mm. If you haven't seen it, then you must be in denial or you must, mustn't have been paying attention. Like, Racism mm. is a reality all over the world and think about it like it would be very bizarre if Ireland would was somehow exempt from that. I've also noticed a strange um, kind of defensiveness um, as if race-based discrimination somehow invalidates um, other social prejudices that might be suffered by white people like in particular you often see commentators on social media claiming that uh, white working class people suffer the same if not more discrimination than people of color you know But that's another way of avoiding the issue, really. Um, You know, firstly, because lots of people of colour are working class too. You know, so they face all that discrimination on top of having to deal with unfair treatment on the basis of their skin colour or origin. Um, You know, secondly, uh, racism is a form of discrimination that doesn't go away when you move into higher social positions. Uh, People of colour from all walks of life face the same obstacles just because of how they might look or sound or where they come from. And thirdly, uh, different kinds of discrimination can exist simultaneously. You know, one one doesn't necessarily invalidate the other. Of course, as we've discussed on the podcast before, racism is shaped by particular local context. And Irish history has quite a complex and interesting interplay with the issue. A hundred years since independence, for us now, a lot of Irish national self-image is founded on identification with Irish anti-colonial struggle. Mm. But something that is perhaps less comfortable to think about is that Ireland was part of the British Empire at a time when that empire was committing some of its greatest colonial atrocities. And even though huge numbers of Irish people suffered under that empire, significant numbers also participated in those imperial atrocities. Like There were Irish people throughout the whole British colonial apparatus, where administrative officials, governors, members of the British army at all levels, um, there were businessmen and traders who exploited empire. There were many Irish slave owners, and many of them profited from empire, used it to move up, and they sent money back home to Ireland. And that's a legacy that's all too easily swept under the carpet. Yeah, yeah. And, and we need to keep in mind that this is something that has been largely erased um, from both imperial and nationalist narratives of history that we might encounter uh, in Ireland. So, you know, not only has British historiography tended to pass over the horrors of colonialism and slavery, um, but it often presents the empire as a kind of benevolent actor um, in these things. Um, nationalist historiography in Ireland, meanwhile, has tended to paint the Irish as like innocent bystanders when it comes uh, to the crimes of empire. And like you say, it's relatively easy for that narrative to do that because it's so focused on the struggle for independence from Britain. Perhaps the most prevalent historical context that marks discussion of race in Ireland is the complicated legacy of the Irish themselves having been victims of colonialism and discrimination. Sometimes you see see this being brought out as a kind of excuse for racism when the topic comes up, like 
uh, the Irish have been victims too. So now we're somehow immune to accusations of racism. Yeah, we, we've spoken before on this podcast, of course, about how racist attitudes towards the Irish, you know, were rife in the 19th and 20th century. Uh, but I think it's really important to be clear here that that was a whole different ballgame to the racism that is still experienced uh, by black people all over the world. Uh, it's something that comes up all the time. And these uh, comparisons have a long history. Um, it reminds me actually of a story um, about a meeting between uh, James Baldwin, of course, the African-American author and civil rights activist. Um, he attended uh, a meeting with Robert F. Kennedy in 1963 to talk about the issue of civil rights, which was, of course, a huge and burning uh, issue uh, at that very moment. Uh, the Kennedys, you know, they were the most famous Irish-American family in the world at the time. They probably still are. And the whole meeting was supposed to be about improving race relations. Uh, but when James Baldwin and some fellow very high-profile activists explained what was happening to black people in the States, uh, Kennedy said that he understood because his family had suffered persecution for being Irish. Um, but look where they had ended up now. You know, they were, they were um, in the White House. Uh, so, of, of course, you know, James Baldwin was like, oh, you don't you don't understand at all. If you think that these two things are equivalent, then you just you haven't even begun to understand the issue of what's happening right now. Of course, if we're talking about 1963, this was a time when Jim Crow laws were still in force. Mm. African-Americans were being lynched with impunity. They were segregated in public spaces. And this was all part of a structural system that was designed to ensure that African-Americans couldn't access the kind of avenues to success that would have been open to other groups like the Irish. Yeah, right. And, you know, all of this is connected with the structure of racism itself, which has always held the oppression of people of African heritage at its very, very core. And that's something that makes it really incomparable to anti-Irish racism. I mean, some people would even say that, you know, using the word racism for anti-Irish sentiment isn't appropriate at all. And I can totally understand that because the word racism itself is so built around the oppression of black people. This is connected to your own academic research, of course, Tim. So could you just break it down a bit more for us, like just in terms of racial theory? Yeah, sure. Uh, and this is a massively, uh, really, really complicated field of study. Um, I think firstly, what it, what's important to appreciate is that race as a concept is not and has never been unified uh, or coherent. In fact, the idea of race as we think we know today, um, is really quite new. It's only really about 300 years old. Um, we start to see the first racial taxonomies kind of fully formulating only in the 1790s. That's really quite startling, like if we think about how deeply ingrained the idea of race is in modern culture today. So how did that come about? I mean, obviously, people before that must have been aware that there were other people who looked different to them. But they didn't frame it in the same way? Is that is that how it was? Yeah, exactly. Um, obviously, of course, yes, people did discriminate against um, against other groups, sometimes uh, on account of how they looked, sometimes not. Um, but with the, there wasn't this discourse, this very kind of firm discourse of race to, to work with. So in Europe, for instance, uh, for a very long time, religion was the primary way to other people, you know, inverted commas. And that worked in the colonial context as well. So if, if you read 16th or 17th century European travel literature, for instance, you'll often see explorers referring to indigenous people primarily as heathens. And they're using that word heathens because that was the relevant justification for their mistreatment or exploitation at that time. That's that's the main thing that people cared about and that they would use to oppress them. I see. Skin colour actually didn't become dominant or central to those discussions until much later, not really until the 1770s. Um, like, it was always there, of course, and it was always a way to oppress people, but um, there was a different way of understanding it, which made it less potent, I suppose. Um, since antiquity, skin colour had been chiefly understood as a consequence of climate. In other words, it was generally believed that any population could become white or become black depending on how long they lived in a particular climate. So there's this you know, fundamentally different premise to skin colour than we know in the race culture today. Basically, skin colour was about the potential of the human body, not about dividing uh, people up into these very fixed types. Okay. But then in the 18th century, um, explorers and naturalists and philosophers in Europe and America suddenly started trying to prove that human diversity was not changeable, that it was inherent 
and more than that, that it quintessentially defined your value as a human being. In fact, they started promoting this really quite radical new idea that humanity was divided up into a number of fixed lineal subgroups that they called major races, and that these subgroups were arranged on a sort of biological hierarchy that like correlated with the natural order of the universe. Um, so why the sudden urgency to prove this? Well, it just happened at this exact same time that Europe and America were massively developing a huge government-funded and industrial-scale transatlantic slave trade. Right. This is so useful just to know. It's something mm. like getting the perspective that these beliefs did, have not dominated since the beginning of time, that there are actually centuries and centuries where human beings just had a completely different frame of reference to do mm. with how people's skin colour. There's something very liberating about that. And then also like to, to locate the origin of it in terms of people's very direct like monetary interests in the slave trade. That just explains so much. And so it also explains why it's so important to recognise modern day racism as set up in the context of oppression of people from African of African heritage. Mm. So it was a way to justify a new form of slavery that was making some people very, very rich. It, it needed to be justified by a belief that these slaves were different from other human beings. So nobody needed to worry about them. Yeah, exactly. Now, uh, you know, like I said, there were loads of other driving forces uh, in the development of racism as well, uh, like anti-Semitism, of course, you know, which has a huge legacy, and of course, colonialism. Um, but justifying the slave trade was the major underlying factor at the time when this concept of racism, uh, as we know it, was, was taking its kind of basic form. Um, in fact, what I find most interesting about the development of so-called race theory, which was what it came to be known at that point, is how incredibly powerful and ubiquitous it became when there was absolutely no scientific evidence to back it up, and there still isn't. You know, it does it does not correlate with anything in the in the real world that we can find out about genetics or or science. You know, the, these race categories are totally arbitrary; they're totally fictional, and, and that often reveals the real motivations uh, behind it. You know, uh, the whole idea behind race theory was that the planet was divided up into a handful of major races. Okay, uh, but racialist anthropologists could never actually agree on what those major races were. Huh. Some of them, yeah, right. Some of them divided the world up into five major races. Some of them said, no, there's only three major races. Some said, no, there's 12 and, and so forth. Um, and I mean, I, I'm not exaggerating here. There's, practically every major race theorist had their own version of, of what race constituted. Um, <laughs> you know, it was totally incoherent. And people absolutely knew that. Um, later on, you start to see other influences coming in. After Darwin introduces his theory of evolution, you start to get social Darwinists in the 1870s. And they said that, ah, right, this is this is uh, race, actually. Some people are just more highly evolved than others. And then later on, you start to see eugenicists in, in the 1890s until like the 1920s, who claimed that, ah, oh, this is this is all about breeding, actually. You know, we're... we're some people have purer blood than others. And like, even at the time, they were seen as quacks. Like, you know, their theories were so inconsistent, but they were highly convenient. So the theories absolutely spread like wildfire. And as we've seen in World War II, they, you know, they are responsible for some of the greatest atrocities in, in the history of humanity. That's incredible. It's almost like, it's like a meme. It's just like some meme that got like yeah. made up and just like spread around just like, just because it, it worked. It, it, it was convenient for people. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I've, the biggest evidence of this is that, you know, like I said, race theory has been disproven scientifically since the 1950s. But racism is still flourishing. Uh, you know, that just shows that this is this is a cultural meme, exactly like you say, that has incredibly powerful uh, potential. So really what I'm trying to say is that race in those centuries ended up as like a big soup of pseudoscience. You had all these multiple and contradictory theories about race existing at the same time, and they were all designed to target whatever group was considered undesirable or threatening in a given place or time. So in that context, you see groups like the Irish being racialized, or the Polish, or Hispanics in the US, you know, and that was all to further political agendas. So it, it, it mutated according to the priorities of the time or the needs of those in power at the time. 
Absolutely. And you could say that it's still mutating, really. You know, when you have a new migrant group that moves into a country, suddenly you see them getting racialized in a new way. Um, mm. So, uh, you know, back then, back in the 19th century in Britain, uh, it was very much kind of rolled out to discredit Irish nationalism. In America, in the 19th century, it was a way of keeping Catholics from taking over institutions, which, which was a big fear there once upon a time. Uh, but... With all this, you know, all these various theories and this big soup of pseudoscience, if you zoom back out from all that, you can still see the original base template behind it. This whole racialist logic was always founded in the same assumption that humanity is a hierarchy, that white Europeans are at the top and that black Africans were at the bottom. And that was the only real consistent thread that ran through all these various and contradicting ideas uh, about mm. race. Um, so that's, you know, like that absolutely shows you quite how fundamental the oppression of, of black Africans was to this. Even like, if you think about that very famous line from Roddy Doyle, I think it's in his novel, The Commitments, where he says, the Irish are the blacks of Europe. You know, you could see that as a, a racist statement about the Irish, uh, even though it's said in, in jest in that book. But, like, that whole force of that statement comes back, you know, not to saying that the Irish are a lesser race, but comparing them with black people. You know, the whole assumption behind that is that black people are at the bottom, uh, rung of the ladder in this discourse. So, always, even if in a particular moment of time, discrimination against Irish people became more prevalent for political reason. All, all the time, it was all founded upon anti-black racism. That was, that was the fundamental ideology behind it. Yeah, absolutely. And like, you know, don't get me wrong. This is not to say that anti-Irish racism or any other kind of racism is somehow okay or it's somehow better. Indeed, at, at certain points in history, we can see lots of strands of discrimination converging. So you might think of the infamous no blacks, no dogs, no Irish signs that were reportedly hung up in windows in Britain in the 1960s. Um, but like you say, yes, that structural centrality of anti-black racism to the idea of racism itself has had this profound effect on its legacy today. So you could look at it this way. Anti-Irish racism is an important piece of the race jigsaw, and the jigsaw is not really complete without it. But anti-black racism is more like the wood from which the jigsaw was carved in the first place. Right. And I suppose the fact that some Irish people today or people of Irish descent in the US who've suffered discrimination in the past, feel empowered or justified to racially discriminate against black people, that proves the point very clearly. Um, mm. Because importantly, just white Irish people, just by existing in a white body, they have open access to avenues of power that are still not open to people of colour. Yeah, and that is, of course, a huge factor. Just, you know, like just the, the sheer power of existing in a white body. Um, coming back to that conversation between James Baldwin and Robert F. Kennedy, um, some of the activists in that room, you know, they reminded Kennedy that his family were second and third generation immigrants. And yes, in that short time, they had managed to reach the presidency of the United States. Uh, but meanwhile, the highly accomplished black people in that room with him, you know, famous singers, playwrights, best-selling authors, they had families that had lived in the US for hundreds of years, but at that very moment, they were still being turned away, you know, from the doors of, of restaurants. And so we can see how that privilege of existing in a white body can benefit the Irish today and also allow them to take part in the oppression of non-white people. Um, we explored it in a previous episode how some people have even promoted false histories uh, about the Irish in America in the form of a myth about Irish slaves, which claims the Irish people were slaves too. But, you know, it has a whole political agenda. Irish people weren't slaves. Um, it's about kind of undermining um, black people, really, by saying, you know, well, we're doing OK. So, you know, stop complaining about slavery yourselves. But yeah, it's totally false. And you can listen back to our episode about that. It's a kind of noted phenomenon as well, that if you have groups that are discriminated against, and perhaps one has like a little tiny bit more privilege than the other one, that one that's on the second rung of the ladder will often punch down to the one on the very lowest rung of the ladder. It's something that you see all over the world. I don't know why it is, but maybe it's just about having that slight edge on someone. Yeah, absolutely. And like, that's one of the strategies of race. You know, it's divide and conquer. It's one of the reasons why it has been so incredibly effective um, as, as a way of controlling people. Uh, because just by offering the little crumbs, by offering the acceptance to people at various stages of the ladder, um, you can get them to start 
punching down, like you say, to the people on the bottom. And policing it, maintaining the system. Absolutely. Literally. (laughs) So, of course, there's a huge, like, there's a very long history of racism in Ireland itself. And it's not just confined to those who were involved in imperial projects. Some of the most famous advocates for Irish nationalism have had very grim views when it came to race. I was going to mention John Mitchell, who's one of the most famous figures of 19th century nationalism, who was adamantly pro-slavery. You know, you could be pro-Irish nationalism and you could be pro-slavery. Those things could coexist. Mm. And there's another person who really sums up the complexity of all of this, who's um, Roger Casement. Um, So you might know Casement for his role in smuggling guns into Ireland as part of a revolutionary plot to throw off, off British rule. He was captured during the Easter Rising in 1916 and he was executed in London as a traitor. However, Roger Casement was actually Sir Roger Casement. He was a diplomat in the British colonial service for 20 years. And what he did, what he he was knighted for, was for his work exposing the atrocities of empire. Curiouser and curiouser. Casement had a background of working in private business in the Congo, highly suspected itself, but uh, he got hired as a, as a diplomat and he was figured to have the right skills to be the man for the British to commission to investigate these very disturbing reports of killings and torture and mutilation that were coming out of the Congo, which at that time was a colony of the Belgian king, uh, Leopold II. So Casement travelled through the Congo and recorded what he saw. And I recently read his report, which is called the Casement Report, that he delivered back to the British government. It's deeply, deeply horrifying. And just every kind of gross and disgusting abuse you can possibly imagine. They were very fond of cutting off people's hands and limbs and mutilating people. It's it's just horrendous. Overall, nobody knows how many people died, but it's, it's estimated to be up to 15 million people. Wow. Um, But a lot of this came to light because of Casement's reporting and the way in which he collected that information is he went and he collected testimony from local people. And if you read the document, it's very, very much recognisably like a modern day human rights report. Mm. And that's why he's been given the kind of nickname, the father of human rights investigations. So that's that fits in our idea of, you know, how everybody has to align Mm. Um, Casement, the Irish nationalist, kind of coheres with Casement, the exposer of colonial atrocities. But if you read the document that he wrote, it's not a politically innocent document. It's actually very clearly political in that it paints the Belgians as like the bad colonizers in contrast to the good British colonizers. So he kind of he describes British colonizers being welcomed and traded with happily by villages along the river and that, you know, when British people travel through the Congo, they don't even need an escort of armed men because people aren't hostile towards them. Whereas the Belgians, you know, can't can't go anywhere because they're so hated that people shoot at them or whatever. You know, this this was a, was a report by British authorities to undermine a rival imperial mm-hmm. power. And the other thing that's rife in the report is racism. So he, you know, he writes about like some of the, the people being lazy um, it's very much kind of riven through with a lot of colonial assumptions, including that fundamentally colonialism is a civilizing mission. That's what it is. It's, it, they're there to like civilize the uncivilized people who are there. It, is, it accepts that as a premise. Mm. It just kind of describes the Belgian Congo as having gone wrong, you know. So it doesn't, it doesn't assume, it doesn't accept that violence is, is inherent to colonialism at all. Um, so I found it really interesting to read that and to see that complex picture of Casement. So that that report that he wrote, I think it came out in 1904. Sorry, it could have been 1903. Well, he came back to Europe and very soon he joined the Gaelic League. Soon after that, he joined Sinn Féin. And then he clearly began his trajectory to becoming the Irish nationalist that he's known as. He became in, involved in plots to, to smuggle in guns and, you know, he, he became more and more radical. So he went on a trajectory of where, you know, he ended up actively opposing the British Empire. But he, he wasn't always that way. Right. <laughs> he, it's a complex story. In a way, you could even see it as like, he could be representative of, of many people in Ireland, you know, who, who benefited initially from empire 
and went on to oppose it. Yeah, right. That that's so interesting. In this context, of course, you know, a lot of people um, in in recent weeks have been kind of talking about people being of their time and not knowing any better, you know, at the time. That's that's total bullshit. Like, people absolutely knew that, for instance, slavery was wrong, you know, in the 19th century. And they knew that, you know, killing, chopping off people's hands was wrong in the 20th century. People weren't idiots. And there were lots of people, you know, contemporaries all throughout history who absolutely opposed um, racism and, you know, racialism. So a good example of that can actually be found in Ireland uh, in this one very proud tradition of anti-racism. Uh, in the history of Irish nationalism. And what I'm talking about is the visit of uh, Frederick Douglass to Ireland in the 19th century. Uh, He was an escaped slave, of course, who went on to become one of the most famous abolitionists in American history. And he was particularly taken at the time um, with the analogies between the situation of Irish peasants and African Americans. This was around 1845, so just on the eve of famine. So Douglass had been really inspired by Daniel O'Connell, Uh, the famous Irish nationalist leader who had succeeded in repealing the sectarian penal laws in 1829. And at the time, O'Connell was pushing for the repeal of the Union uh, with Britain entirely. So these two guys actually struck up quite a famous friendship. Um, And Frederick Douglass came to Ireland, like I said, in 1845, and did a whole tour of the country, where he gave these huge, highly publicised speeches uh, denouncing slavery and the treatment of Irish peasants at the time. And that was in the vein of what O'Connell had been doing. O'Connell used to have these monster meetings uh, where he would gather people together in really some of the first instances of peaceful protest that that we kind of have uh, in the modern world. Mm. Um, So, you know, Frederick Douglass was speaking, you know, in the same context, and his central message was that to stand up for oppressed African-Americans was to stand up for oppressed people everywhere, and that Irish peasants and African-Americans were ultimately struggling for the same basic right, just simple equality. So it's a fascinating crossover moment in history, and it has left a very long uh, legacy. Uh, In fact, when Barack Obama visited Ireland in 2011, he referenced uh, Frederick Douglass. He said, I quote, When we strove to blot out the stain of slavery and advance the rights of man, we found common cause with your struggles against oppression. It wasn't the only time that this sense of common cause has been brought up either. In the 1960s, when Catholics in Northern Ireland were suffering from systemic discrimination under the Unionist government, nationalist activists took direct inspiration from the civil rights movements of African Americans at the time. Bernadette Devlin, who was one of the foremost spokespeople for the Catholic civil rights movement in Northern Ireland in the 20th century, went on a highly publicised tour of her own in the United States, where she not only outlined the analogies between the struggle for Catholic civil rights in the North and the struggle of African-Americans in the US, but she also openly supported the Black Panther Party. She faced huge blowback, actually, from Irish-Americans for that. When that happened, she called them out for the hypocrisy of supporting Irish liberation while continuing to participate in the oppression of black Americans at home. Let's hear a clip of her speaking in Boston. Uh, This was during a later tour of the US in 1979. Uh, There is nothing sadder to people struggling against oppression in Ireland to look towards Boston City and see our people. We know how they got here. We know the oppression they fled from Ireland in various generations to get to this city being used to oppress the black people of this city. People tell me I don't understand the situation. They tell me blacks are lazy, they don't want to work, they want to lower the standard of education. In fact, they tell me all the things I was brought up to hear about myself, things Protestant people said about Catholic people in Belfast. And. Uh, I think that's part of it too. I mean, if they really understood what was happening in Ireland, they would get themselves sorted out and stand on the right side here because we identify very closely in our struggle for equality and our struggle against oppression. In fact, the whole inspiration of our civil rights movement 10 years ago came from the black movement of America. So as you can hear there, there is a really significant liberationary and egalitarian tradition to draw from in Ireland when it comes to race equality, which makes it all the sadder that racism has managed to maintain such a strong foothold in the country today. A lot of the major issues being discussed in the context of the Black Lives Matter movement revolves around the prevalence of systemic racism. But maybe we should kind of describe what that is exactly, what is systemic racism? It's basically an insidious form of racism that expresses itself through underlying attitudes in institutions and systems. So it might not necessarily be overt at all. People might not even be aware that they're 
participating in it until their attention is drawn to the fact. That's a big misunderstanding about what it means to be racist. It doesn't mean you have to actively, willfully, like, say racist stuff to people. Like, you don't have to be doing it actively. You can still be racist unconsciously, you know? you Everybody has biases. And and when these get into systems and it begins, it begins acting in a systemic way, it's something that's just can't be left stand. So I spoke recently to Dr. Yvonne Joseph and she teaches Black Studies at University College Dublin, which incidentally is the first ever such course in Ireland. And she gave me a really good example of it. So she asked her students to look at four theoretical candidates with the exact same qualifications who were applying for a fictional job. So she gave one Irish, one Nigerian, one Spanish and one Polish. And then she asked the students to classify those candidates in order of who would probably be considered the most desirable to most employers in Ireland. And every single student returned the same order. Irish first, then Spanish, then Polish, and then Nigerian. So what Ibon was demonstrating is that there is this common knowledge we might not even realise we are aware of, which is a common set of prejudices. We already know that these are creating injustice, but they're so commonplace that we hardly even notice them. Let's listen to Dr. Joseph. So you've done research on the experience of people of migrant descent in Ireland. And one of the things that you were looking into is racial stratification. Can I ask you to explain what is that and how did you investigate that here in Ireland? I used to work, you know, with business in the community and I began to observe that, you know, depending on the nationality of the um, people who came to us, it took us a longer time to help them find either employment or even education. And sometimes even unpaid work like internships or volunteering for two years, you know, um, the darker they are, the longer it took us to help them find that, you know, and I wanted to understand why. Just think about it, you know, because when you talk to people, they say, oh, you know, it's because they are immigrants. And the question I always say is, okay, if that's the case, then everyone who is of migrant descent in Ireland should have the same experience. Does that happen? Absolutely not. We began to understand that it is, you know, that the system is racially stratified. When people are black, whether they are in Ireland or in the UK or in the US or even as far, you know, as Lagos, you know, they are at the bottom of the economic ladder. So the question is, there must be something common happening in all of these localities and jurisdictions that makes the outcome of this group of people the same. And so the the finding was that it was not where people end up, it is actually where they start. Depending on the nationality of people, you know, they are given, they are attributed a, a lower starting point. So even when people have the same level of education, the same level of communication and spoken English. The fact that they are black or of African descent, even when they were born here in Ireland, they still have a, a lesser um, labor market outcome than you know um, people who are white. For example, our census in 2016 shows that if you're Irish or Western European, your unemployment rate is between 5 and 8%. If you're Eastern European, it's between 13 and 17%. If you're of African descent, the unemployment rate of Africans in Ireland is between 43 and 63%. That's over eight times the unemployment rate. Now, these are people who have right to live and work in Ireland. So they don't have immigration problems anymore. They're not looking for visas. They are here. So what it really means is that the, it is staggered, that people don't start at the same point. Again, this is not just Ireland. It is, it is across Europe, you know, but it still doesn't take away from the fact that there is racism, you know, in Ireland. And it is ingrained. It happens, you know, every day. There was a, a report that was done. It's called the EU Midas, um, EU MIDS um, 2. It was done eight years ago and it was done repeated again in 2016. And it showed that, you know, like, you know, black Africans and sub-Saharan Africans and the Roma, you know, are the three groups that experience the highest level of discrimination. And in Ireland, it was very, very high. That, that report, and it's a, a report that was done, you know, across all of the EU countries, over 24,000 people were interviewed. So it, not just, it wasn't just a small, you know, Irish um, report. It was a, an EU-wide um, report that was done. One was done by the OECD. Ireland, we ranked up there among the countries who discriminate against blacks. 
There is mm. report out there that shows that. There's, pl- there's plenty of international oh, evidence. There is international and there is local mm. evidence. Even our census statistics also tells us that. Mm. Unfortunately, what happens is when you start talking about this, then people go, we start conflicting it with, you know, asylum seekers. Oh, I'm like, no, this is, these are people who, there is black Europe now, you know, there, there are black Africans, you know, there are people of migrant descent who are, you know, Europeans now. So it's not just people who are trying to um, seek asylum, you know, people start talking about oh, asylum seekers, language, English, no, no, they're schooled here. And so what we find is that uh, people of migrant descent, particularly black Africans who have been able to move, hit, they try and, you know, get their accounting jobs, they can't get it. So they, they negotiate their pursuits downwards. And that's what I write about the paper, in the paper, how people are renegotiating their um, career pursuits downward. And it is a waste, you know, it is a waste. Difference is supposed to be a benefit to us as a nation. You know, so when when we bring our difference and our abilities here and are not allowed to work with it, you know, then we miss out. Everybody loses. Now, as we mentioned at the very beginning of the episode, Tim, this problem takes on some very particular dimensions in Northern Ireland, which in recent years has been dubbed horrendously by some media outlets as the race-hate capital Mm. of Europe. By 2004, Northern Ireland had the highest number of racist incidents in the UK. And according to the BBC, racially motivated crimes there rose by over 50% in 2014 alone. Right, yeah. Over the last few years, there has been in and around 1,000 racist incidents reported per year in Northern Ireland. But that statistic, that takes on a whole new significance when you consider the population demographics here. Um, According to the most recent census, a whopping 98.2% of people in Northern Ireland describe themselves as white. Uh, The number of people in Northern Ireland who describe themselves as black in that same census only came out at 0.2% of the entire population. That translates to about 3,500 individuals. So when you consider 1,000-ish racist incidents per year happening in that context, you get a sense of the sheer intensity of of discrimination uh, being directed towards a tiny group of people. Wow. And this, what the statistics show is that these crimes range anywhere from verbal abuse to petrol bombs and people being driven out of their homes. And what's more, the figures that we have, they only represent the incidents and crimes that were reported Um, Because, of course, like in many places, there can be a huge reluctance to come forward about incidents like this for a number of reasons. Reporting itself in itself might be an unpleasant or risky experience, or victims might simply have no faith that the report will come to anything and don't want to spend any more energy on the issue. According to Amnesty International, for instance, out of the 1,062 racist incidents that were reported in Northern Ireland between 2016 and 2017, 83% resulted in no prosecution and no warning. According to the PSNI, the majority of these incidents seem to be taking place in loyalist areas, though not all of them. Um, Officers from the PSNI have told the BBC that they believe the pro-British paramilitary group, the UVF, the Ulster Volunteer Force, might be behind some of these attacks in what has been seen as a form of ethnic cleansing. Uh, In fact, flags of the KKK have even been seen flying in East Belfast uh, in recent years. Uh, That's not at all to say that one side of the community in Northern Ireland is totally responsible uh, for for these statistics, but it does demonstrate how the old templates of division are kind of being superimposed onto ethnic minorities now. The issue of racism in Northern Ireland is, of course, complicated by the territory's ongoing legacy of community segregation. Community segregation became particularly stark in the wake of the conflict, which mostly came to an end in 1998. It's left a very strong imprint in practically all walks of life in one way or another. Basically, segregation among groups that are seen as different has long been a normal part of daily life in lots of places in Northern Ireland. And that seems to have translated into a form of racial discrimination. Just as in the Republic, these are structural problems that we need to confront and really discuss if we're going to have any chance of moving past them. Like we said earlier, racism is always dependent on the power dynamics of a given place and time. And we need to recognise and acknowledge those power dynamics in order to address the problems that stem from them. So, Naomi, before we finish up this episode, one last thing that is really interesting in the context of Ireland is the recent controversy about dismantling statues uh, that celebrate prominent figures of historical racism. 
Right. So, of course, famously, we saw the statue of Edward Colston deposed in Bristol in recent weeks. Colston was a merchant trader with the with the British Royal Africa Company, which saw the forced transport of some 84,000 slaves from Africa to the Americas. And of course, across Belgium, statues of King Leopold II, the butcher of the Congo, have also been pulled down. And at the same time, activists are taking aim at many Confederate statues in the US. Now, lots of people have reacted to these recent events with horror and even denounced it as a way of uh, erasing history. But from my personal point of view as a historian, I think that you know their argument would be total nonsense. And honestly, I don't think I've personally encountered any uh, historian saying otherwise. Um, because who we choose to celebrate in history, whether it be in the form of a statue or a schoolbook, is always a choice. You know, what we think of as history, this, you know, kind of block that is history, is really just a tiny sliver of history. And it's usually the tiny sliver that shows the nation state in its absolutely best possible light, uh, even if that means strategically ignoring or whitewashing counter narratives. Um, these statues then, you know, they represent a very overt choice. Uh, the people who erected them decided that whatever good thing this person did, you know, maybe they opened a school or they funded a scholarship or whatever, um, that that was more important than the fact that they were involved in the trade or massacre of human beings. And taking down these statues in that context is not erasing history. It's breaking a very particular, essentially, you know, propagandistic interpretation of history that has a very clear political agenda. Uh, if anything, if you ask me, by highlighting the way these statues have suppressed what really happened in the past, their public uh, deposition is, you know, bringing more history to light that might otherwise have remained covered up for God knows how long. You know, Tim, I keep thinking about how you called out as bullshit the idea that people were of their time or didn't know any better. And mm. thinking about, like, when it comes to figures like Colston or, you know, the Confederate statues in the US, Clearly, their victims knew that they were wrong. The, the people who were being traded in boats across the Atlantic clearly knew that that was a, a wrong situation. So like we're talking, when we say that it was acceptable at the time, we're just talking about the people who were in power at the time um, and that, you know, they just had the power to impose their own interests at that particular moment in time. There's a really interesting dynamic um, with this when it comes to Ireland, of course, um, because the whole stat tearing down of statues thing, renaming thing, is something that the Irish are kind of specialists at. This whole thing happened in the Irish Republic when it became independent. Much of Dublin, of course, you know, the capital was built as a colonial city. And that meant that after the free state gained independence, the country was just absolutely littered with symbols of empire. And over the following years, there were waves of efforts to decolonialize public spaces of their symbols of British supremacy. Yeah, and that kind of creates an interesting um, shadow to uh, the current conversation about statues when you bring it into an Irish context. You know, back then, uh, just after independence, some people didn't want to take down those symbols. You know, they were used to them. They might even have been quite fond of them. Others, you know, said, no, we've got to leave them up as a reminder of our past. Uh, but then there were others who saw them as, you know, just telling the history of Ireland from a British point of view, um, that they represented a skewed version of history that only celebrated the things that showed Britain in a good light and erased, you know, the truth about what those colonial figures had really done to the country. That's really interesting. Mm. And of course, it's a patchwork. So some of the symbols remain. Not all of them are statues. I recently noticed that my local train station close to where I grew up has RG in its metalwork, which I think is like Regius George or whatever, King mm. George. Now, you might think, for example, of the Royal College of Surgeons in Stevens Green in Dublin. That was actually a major site of the Irish uprising in 1916. But it's, it's retained that royal in its name right up to the present day. And if you look closely at the building itself, it bears the British royal coat of arms on its facade. Mm. But others had a very different fate, of course. So now uh, you have the spire in the middle of Dublin, that big metal spike. And where it stands, there used to be a huge monument to the British Admiral Horatio Nelson. Um, the pillar was locally known as Nelson's Pillar, and it was put up in 1809. And that was just a few years after Ireland was in inducted into the Union and after independence, like no one really knew what to do with it. Even though it was seen as a symbol of British oppression, some high-profile nationalist figures like W.B. Yeats also stressed that it was built by Irish people and it was part of our national heritage. So for decades, it just stayed up there. 
until 1966 when the IRA detonated a bomb under it and destroyed the pillar. Like the very street, of course, on which the pillar used to stand uh, had its name changed after independence. Um, it used to be called Sackville Street. That was one of Ireland's colonial administrators, Lionel Sackville. But it was renamed O'Connell Street after that nationalist leader, Daniel Connell, who we mentioned earlier on. And the same thing happened with loads of streets in Dublin, uh, like Pierce Street, that was once Great Brunswick Street, or Parnell Square, that was originally Rutland Square. And even whole towns were given back their original Irish names, like uh, Port Leisha, which had been known as Maryborough since the plantations and remained that way until 1929. It's incredible to think of some of those names, mm. like Dunleary had been known as Kingstown for a hundred years. It's just it, like, it's so on the nose. Uh, that was in honour of a visit by King George IV, and that name went out as soon as the country became independent. Likewise with Cove in Cork, which was for a time called Queenstown. I think it's fair to say that in Ireland we don't really think about those things as an erasure of history, even if they were maybe intended to be, because everyone knows the history, old and new. It's, it's more understood as a kind of recognition of a different kind of history these days, and I suppose a refusal to let one very narrow vision of the past dominate our understandings. Now, we, we fully realise that this has been a very heavy topic in this episode, uh, but confronting this enormous social injustice is so important, uh, even if that means dwelling on some really unpleasant realities. As I see it, we as Irish people have three choices in this. A, we can fall into the trap of racialism. Um, we can let ourselves be divided and conquered, and we can take the soup of mm-hmm. uh, white supremacy by treating ethnic minorities exactly like we were once treated ourselves. Uh, Or B, we can use our past history of oppression to stay out of the conversation and turn a blind eye to the oppression of other people around us. Or C, we can take inspiration from Frederick Douglass and Daniel O'Connell standing side by side in front of cheering crowds in Cork and Waterford and Bangor, loudly proclaiming that the oppression of some of us is the oppression of all of us. Not only is this last choice the most obvious, in my opinion, but when you take into account our history and traditions in Ireland, really, it is the only logical choice. Uh, We have the power to make Ireland a non-racist country, but the only way we can do that is for each of us to play our part in making it an anti-racist country. Right. And as we've seen, the idea that Ireland is exempt or Irish people are exempt from racism because we are victims of colonialism is just not true. However, it is a beautiful dream. No one is wrong for wanting that to be true, but we have to actually work to make it a reality. So don't put your energy into defending the idea that Irish people aren't or can't be racist because they were victims of colonialism. Instead, listen to black people, pay attention to the reality and put your energy into actually achieving this thing. There's the potential for Ireland to actually use its history for additional empathy, not to block out the reality of what's going on, but to become effective in changing it. Okay. Uh, By the way, guys, if you're new to the podcast, you might be interested in some of our previous episodes that have touched on related issues. Uh, In particular, like we mentioned, the Irish Slavesmith episode from season one. Um, uh, You might also like to check out our live show on Ireland and America from 2019, where best-selling author of Don't Touch My Hair, Emma Dabbery, explains the role of Irish immigrants in early racial discrimination against African-Americans. We'll put those links in the show notes. Thanks so much to everyone who spoke to us for this episode. And as always, if you like the podcast, do give us a share on social media or a nice rating on whatever podcast app you use so that more people can know where to find us. And if you're hungry for more Irish Passport content, remember you can find a whole archive of Half Mind Extra content over on our Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash the Irish Passport. Sloan for now. Sloan, everyone. Sloan.